1944, a German bomb exploded near Westminster Chapel in London during the worship service, causing plaster and dust to fall from the ceiling on the heads of the congregation. When the bomb hit, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was in the midst of his pastoral prayer. He paused just for a moment, then concluded his prayer, and went on to preach his entire sermon. No matter what was happening in the world of current events, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones believed that the best thing he could do for his people was to provide for them Christ-centered, expository preaching. He believed that was a central means of grace to strengthen and equip by the ministry of the Holy Spirit his people so that they will be prepared to face whatever challenges they may encounter in life. And I believe that is still true today. As we open God's Word to Luke chapter 17 and continue our series in a most unusual way, we'll begin in verse 7. Hear God's Word. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask that you would strengthen us by your grace and through the ministry of your word, equip and prepare us to face whatever trials may come our way. Would you this day be pleased to fill us anew and afresh with your spirit? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, Becky and I were eating at Fat's Restaurant, and evidently it was a slow night. As we were eating, our waitress sat down at the table with us and began to visit. We really enjoyed it, but afterwards commented of how unusual that was. That just doesn't happen every day in our restaurants. But suppose that particular evening, our waitress not only sat down at the table and visited with us, but began to eat with us. And after eating for a while, suppose that we ran out of those fats, famous melt-in-your-mouth, low-calorie-I-wish, butter glaze, poppy seed rolls that are just substitute for donuts. And what if we ran out of sweet iced tea and our waitress looked at us and said, would you mind getting me some refills? That would be highly unusual. That would be borderline unthinkable. Why? Because that's her job. That's why we're paying her, and on top of that, tipping her, because that's her job and her responsibility. Now, if that would be odd in our culture today, imagine for a moment what it must have been like in first century Palestine, when the culture was defined in many ways by servant-master relationships. That would have been even more beyond unthinkable. That would have been beyond cultural understanding. And yet Jesus takes this kind of event in this mini parable to share us something again of what the kingdom of God 
and what his people are like. I believe in this parable, one of the things that we see coming out of it is that the infinite worthiness of the master calls for our service unto him. In order to drive this home, Jesus asked three rhetorical questions, questions that didn't really require much thinking on the part of the people of that day because the answer was so obvious. Question number one, verse seven, will any one of you who has a servant plowing and keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? The obvious cultural response is, of course not. Question number two, verse eight, Will the master not rather say to the servant, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards then you can eat and drink? And the obvious answer is yes, that's the cultural protocol. That's what servants are paid to do. And then question number three in verse nine, does the master thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The answer is No. I mean, think about it. When you arrive at work in the morning or when you arrive in the classroom, does your boss or your professor come up to you and greet you at the door and say, thank you so much for setting your alarm. Thank you for getting in your car and and coming here on time. Of course not. That's what you're supposed to do. Now, why is Jesus giving us this parable? What's with these rhetorical questions? He's driving home the point in the culture of that day is that the master and servant were quite different. Socioeconomically, the master was superior to the servant. And because of that, he was worthy of the servant's service. And Jesus is pointing out if that is true in the earthly realm with earthly masters and earthly servants, how much more so? Is this true between our heavenly master and ourselves? There's a gap Jesus is helping us understand. There's a cultural gap in his day between the master and the servant. But how much more so is there this great gap between our God and us? Moses certainly understood this glory gap, if you will, As he approached the burning bush, the Lord said to him, Do not come near. Take off your sandals, for the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. And Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at the face of God. Later in chapter 33 of Exodus, Moses gets up the nerve and he says, Please, show me your glory. And God, in essence, says, You can't handle my glory you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live so Moses was not allowed to see the face of God nor could he bear that sight so God graciously placed him in the cleft of a rock placed his hand upon him and allowed Moses to catch just a glimpse of the trail of his glory some of us remember not too long ago the solar eclipse And as we are looking at that full eclipse where the sun was completely hidden behind the moon, all of a sudden there was this burst, this solar diamond, if you will, and immediately as the sun began to come from behind the moon, we had to do what? Immediately put on our glasses, immediately cover our eyes or look away. Such is the glory of our God. So we sing, no angel in the sky can fully bear that sight. 
The psalmist reminds us of the glory of God in Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord what? Glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord and the splendor of His holiness. So awe-inspiring, so breathtaking is the glory of God that it immediately ushers us in to awe-struck worship. No wonder the psalmist later on said, I call upon the Lord who is worthy of praise. The word worship from the Old English comes from the combination of worth-ship. When we worship, we are acknowledging and we are declaring that God alone is all glorious and magnificent and worthy of our praise. So what is Jesus doing in this mini-parable? He's drawing our attention to a cultural gap in order that we would begin to understand this glory gap between us and between our God. Our heavenly Master is worthy of all glory, laud, and honor. And as Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples and explaining this parable, they're beginning to catch a glimpse of Jesus' absolute infinite worthiness as their master. To be loved and honored and adored and served. That's the purpose of these threefold rhetorical questions that he's asked. In other words, in the words of Andrew Peterson's great him is he worthy the answer is he is but the comparison of the master and his servants in this mini parable also begs another question not just is jesus worthy of my service but am i worthy of jesus am i worthy of jesus service and the true believer recoils at that question. Because like the other rhetorical questions, we don't have to think long at all about the answer to this. We know the answer. It's even more obvious. What is that answer? Look at verse 10. This should be the response of the servant. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy Servants, we've only done what is our duty. You see, Jesus wants us to realize that in light of the infinite worthiness of the Master, it underscores our utter unworthiness as His servants. This is where Jesus is driving home the point. That's why He says, so you also. So you also what? So you also in light of the infinite worthiness of the master must come to the same conclusion i am but an unworthy servant you see if we recognize the infinite glory of god in christ we will immediately be reminded of our unworthiness i will be reminded in the presence of this holy 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 christ of my un worthiness of my sin and my shame and the echoes in the, my heart should be that of the younger son in the story the prodigal son father i am an, no longer worthy to be called your son 
This was the testimony of virtually everyone recorded in Scripture who had encounter with the glory of God, whether it was Moses at the burning bush, the people at the foot of Sinai, whether it was Isaiah as he caught a glimpse of God's glory in his heavenly vision, whether it was Peter in the boat with Jesus after the miraculous catch of fish, whether it was the beloved disciple John in Revelation 1 as he caught a glimpse of Jesus' glory in all of these instances, every last single one of them recoiled in the presence of his glory and immediately confessed their utter unworthiness. God's glory reminds me of my utter unworthiness before him. But so does his grace. What do I mean? Grace, by definition, is always unmerited. It can never be earned or worked for. It can never be merited by our discipline or by our devotion. Therefore, grace is a constant reminder. The very definition of grace is a constant reminder of my unworthiness. As servants of Christ, we should always be acutely aware that we are but debtors to mercy alone and at best are unworthy servants. Another translation is unprofitable. Unprofitable deals with the idea that there's nothing I can contribute to my salvation other than my sin. There's virtually nothing I can contribute. Therefore, my salvation and your salvation is always and forever all of God and all of grace. At best, we're unworthy, unprofitable servants. And so this is why we sing as the redeemed by grace servants of Christ, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This is always the heart posture of the redeemed by grace servants of Christ in his glorious presence. And it's precisely this grasp of grace that will guard our hearts against a mercenary, you-owe-me attitude towards our master. If the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son reflected the attitude of unworthiness, then the older brother reflected an attitude, a deluded attitude of worthiness, in essence saying, you-owe-me. As the elder brother in the story in Luke 15 heard the music, heard the celebration over the return of his younger brother. He went to his father. His father actually went to him and he said, Look, these many years I have served you and have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes you killed the cat fatted calf for him did, did you hear his heart did you hear his understanding and his relationship with his father look i did everything commanded you commanded you owe me 
where's my party? You know, how do we respond when things don't go our way? How do we respond to the disappointments in life? How do I respond when it seems to be an endless, unanswered prayer that I've been uttering before the Lord for years? Do we grumble and complain and become angry like the elder brother because deep down inside, we believe at some distorted fundamental level that God still owes us. After all, look at our faithful service. Have we forgotten that we are but debtors to mercy alone? Have we forgotten the undeserved nature of grace itself and the reality that we are unworthy servants? Have we morphed into a mercenary relationship with the Master? My attitude towards the commands of Christ, my attitude even towards this idea of duty is always an indication of the kind of relationship that I have with Jesus. Think for a moment, continue to think back to, to Luke, 18, uh, Luke 15 and the parable of the prodigal son. Keep that in mind for a moment. If we view duty as did the younger son, as simply an option, or if we view it as the older son, the older brother, as a burden, then whichever way we lean, younger son or older son, we will always view the word duty as a dirty four-letter word that needs to be avoided at all costs. Why? We immediately feel the restriction. We immediately feel the weight and the burden. We immediately want to buck the system. But keep in mind, it's a reflection of what my relationship with Jesus is really like. But if we view duty as a loving response to Jesus' commands, if we see it as an expression and an opportunity to demonstrate our love for and trust in and reliance upon Him, our adoration for Him and our honor of Him, then that is a game changer. For the believer whose heart is beginning to be gripped by grace more firmly, never like the younger brother will it be simply seen as an option or like the older brother will it be a burden. This is why Jesus said two times in John 14, if you love me, you will what? You will seek to obey. You will obey my commands. John went on to say in his first epistle, he wrote these words, for this is the love of God, this is love for God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, if we don't understand a right relationship with God through Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, we will see the commands as a tremendous burden because we'll think it's our ticket or our avenue to somehow merit or earn or work for God's favor and salvation. But having come to the realization that it is all of God and all of grace, we look again at these same commands and we say, here is the wish of a Savior who loves me. And those commands are no longer a burden. A couple of weeks ago, after the ladies' Wednesday morning Bible study, I was carrying my granddaughter from the church down to the lower parking lot to the car. And I just made a silly remark and said, oh, what a burden. A burden? Really? One of the greatest highlights of my week is carrying my granddaughter from the church down to the car. You may think I have a boring week. But the reason it's not a burden 
The reason it's one of the greatest delights in my life to pick her up and to hold her in my arm is because she has me wrapped around her little finger. And I love Evelyn. And so it should be with our God. Our Heavenly Master, our our Father, our Lord and Savior who has us wrapped around His heart. We should with increasingly love see and hear His commands not as a burden but as an expression. Not merely as a duty but as a delight. I quote it often. But William Cooper's hymn Love Constraining to Obedience is so true. To see the law in Christ fulfilled. To hear His parting voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Why? Because in the gospel of Jesus, the commands don't change. My heart does. It's transformed by His grace, and as a result, the once dirty word duty becomes a delight. Now again, what is Jesus doing in all this? The application of the parable hinges on the cultural understanding of this gap between master and servant. And therefore, for the master to serve the servant, as the parable indicates, is absurd. It's unheard of. It's unthinkable. It simply wasn't done. It would be to break every social expectation and cultural protocol. But this cultural understanding of this vast separation in that day between master and servant serves to provide a background for a surprise. A surprise of unexpected, undeserved grace. The surprise of grace in the gospel is this. The infinitely worthy master will serve his utter unworthy servants to highlight this cultural expectation again jesus said earlier and we read it in verses 7 8 what earthly master when a servant comes in from the field says to him come at once and recline at the table will he not rather say to him prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while i eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink what master wouldn't do this This is the protocol. This is the cultural expectation. This is what the servant is being paid to do, to serve the master first, and then he can go and eat on his own. And so with this background, can you imagine the shock when on the night of the Passover, Jesus, the Lord and Savior of the the servants and of the disciples, took off his outer garment wrapped himself with a towel, stooped at their dirty, filthy feet, and with water in the basin began to wash the feet of the disciples. Peter, knowing the worthiness of Jesus and knowing his utter unworthiness, immediately recoiled, immediately told Jesus not to do it, but Jesus persisted. And in that moment, we catch a picture of God's unfathomable grace. The master performed the unheard of of this parable. 
And in all humility, he stooped to serve his servants. But he wasn't finished. After washing their feet and after the meal, he departed and he headed toward Jerusalem where he would face the cross. The greatest display of servanthood in all of human history. The most profoundly shocking example of a master serving his unworthy, sinful servants. And why did he do it? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. On that Passover evening before his crucifixion, Jesus served his disciples. The Master did what the parable said was unheard of and unthinkable. And yet we read even more. Early in Luke in chapter 12 in our series, we read of the Master's one day return. And this is what Jesus said. Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake when He comes. Truly I say to you, He, that is the Master, will dress Himself for service and have them recline at table. And He will come and serve them. Did you hear that? Upon the Master's return, He will dress Himself as a servant. He will have us sit at His table. And He will serve us. If it was shocking for Peter, for Jesus to wait on Him and to wash His feet, how much more shocking, how much more astounding, how much more amazing should it be for us to imagine the glorified Christ in all of His beauty and majesty, will come as a servant one day, have a seat at His table, and He will serve us. Kent Hughes rightly said, the eternal marvel is that ultimately Jesus will do for us what no earthly master would ever do. Everything is of grace. Therefore, there is no ground for pride only for eternal praise. When we begin to understand what Jesus is doing in this parable, not simply giving us a, a cultural gap between master and servant, but painting for us this glory gap between himself and us, and then reminding us that he has come to serve. For those of us who recognize our utter unworthiness for that service, and the infinite worthiness of our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. For those of us who have been surprised by this unexpected, undeserved grace, it will continue to lead us to this humble, heartfelt sense of praise. And having been served by the Master, how much more ready should we be to serve one another in humility and love and in grace? thinking of his great service unto us, and that one day he will return dressed as a servant to serve us at the banquet feast forever. It really does beg yet a final question. So what can I say? What can I do? The answer, but offer this heart, O God, completely to you. May this glory gap grip our hearts 
by the grace of God. And may that be our attitude towards our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, protect us from wallowing in our unworthiness, as did the younger brother, and even treat your commands as an option. And protect our hearts, Father, from becoming the elder brother, a mercenary before you demanding that you owe us, but rather grant us a glimpse of the glorified Christ, of his infinite beauty and worthiness to be praised. And so doing remind us of our utter unworthiness and then of the grace and the mercy that one day you, Lord Jesus, will come and serve us, humble us, we pray. Surprise us anew by your grace and lead us to that heartfelt praise and that heart desire. So what can I say? What can I do but offer this heart, O oh God, completely to you? In Jesus' name, amen.